This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if you've come around New City for a while, you'll hear us walk down some well-worn paths, so to say. So much so that Josh and I have this ongoing bit about who gets to quote who. We kind of had a mock draft um, of uh, different sources. I picked Bob Dylan, the Beatles, Frederick Buechner, Annie Lamott. Um, we gave Mike punk rock and all things contemporary because he's kind of the coolest pastor with the most tattoos. And Ryan obviously gets Beethoven. Pastor Josh got Lord of the Rings, uh, C.S. Lewis, and Bono. Tim Keller was too hard to divvy up, so we just have shared custody of him. You'll hear him this morning. This is such a trope that actually Carrie Tran made up a New City bingo card. Um, so you can print those off and play along. Pastor Josh isn't here this morning, so I'm going to encroach on his territory and steal Bono from him this morning. So you can check that off on your bingo card uh, if you are playing along at home. So Bono, um, the singer of U2, wrote an introduction to a collection of psalms, uh, and this is what he wrote. He says, at age 12, I was a fan of David. He felt familiar, like a pop star could feel familiar. The words of the Psalms were as poetic as they were religious, and he was a star, a dramatic character, because before David could fulfill the prophecy and become the king of Israel, he had to take quite a beating. He was forced into exile and ended up in a cave in some no-name border town, facing the collapse of his ego and abandonment by God. But this is where the soap opera got interesting. This is where David was said to have composed his first psalm, a blues what a lot of the Psalms feel like to me, the blues, man shouting at God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? I hear echoes of this holy row when unholy bluesman Robert Johnson howls, there's a hellhound on my trail, or Van Morrison sings, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Abandonment, displacement is the stuff of my favorite Psalms. The Psalter may be a font of gospel music, but for me, It's in his despair that the psalmist really reveals the nature of his special relationship with God. Honesty, even to the point of anger. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Answer me when I call. Psalms and hymns were my first taste of inspirational music. I liked the words, but I wasn't sure about the tunes. With the exception of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I remember them as droned and chanted rather than sung. Still, in an odd way, they prepared me for the honesty of John Lennon the Baroque language of Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen, the open throat of Al Green and Stevie Wonder. When I hear these singers, I'm reconnected to a part of me I have no explanation for, my soul, I guess. Words and music did for me what solid, even rigorous religious argument could never do. They introduced me to God. Not belief in God, more an experiential sense of God. Over art, literature, reason, the way into my spirit was a combination of words and music. As a result, the book of Psalms always felt open to me, and led me to the poetry of Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, the Book of John. My religion could not be fiction, but it had to transcend facts. It could be mystical, but not mythical, and definitely not ritual. You know, for a number of summers here at New City, we've done a series of summer psalms, kind of revisit the psalms each year. And this summer, we're dipping into the psalms again, and we're calling this round Prayers for All Seasons. And we're looking at a number of the psalms from the 30s starting this morning with Psalm 30. These psalms are prayers. They're prayers that are songs and songs that are prayers. And they speak to all of life, all seasons of life. 
not only the four seasons of nature, which we seem to be able to experience here in Cincinnati in any order, and back and forth uh, with snow in May or temperatures in the 70s. Apparently the temperature dropped 20 degrees in one evening in more than an hour uh, on Friday. But not just the four seasons of nature, right? but all of the seasons of life, whether we're a kid, kids, I see you, uh, or whether you just had your first kid, whether you're just starting out in the job market or retired, single, married, widowed, new to the Christian faith, longtime believer, in a time of easygoing or a time of significant suffering. Whatever season of life you are in, there are prayers for you in the Psalms. See, the Psalms show us a range, the full range of human emotions. Now, if you're like me, this may make you uncomfortable. You're at a Presbyterian church, after all. We're not exactly known for our emotiveness. One of my favorite jokes is, I had an emotion once, I'll never do that again. My family's not laughing at that one. Uh, but the, the Psalms show us that it is good and right to express and pray the full myriad of human emotions. Right? It's an area of growth for me that I've been working on. It's called emotional intelligence. You know, unless we think that this is unpresbyterian, the Presbyterian, John Calvin, called the Psalms an anatomy of all parts of the soul. Listen to him. This is what he said. He said, I have been accustomed to call this book. I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life of all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities. In short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. The Psalms express every human emotion we can feel, if you feel it, The Psalms at one point or another express it so much so that the Psalms form an anatomy of all parts of the soul. And Tim Keller says we are, in a sense, to put them inside our own prayers or perhaps put our prayers inside them and approach God in that way. In doing this, the Psalms involve the speaker directly in new attitudes, commitments, promises, and even emotions. Thanks to the Psalms, uh, they give us the language of prayer how to talk to God, how we can express what's going on. Jesus himself quoted the Psalms more than any other book of the scriptures. The Psalms were Jesus' prayer book. So we're taking the next several weeks to dig into some of these prayers for all seasons. Now, that's a long way of introduction there to the Psalms and to the series. But we start this morning with a Psalm of David, Psalm 30. You can turn there in your copy of the scriptures if you'd like. It's also printed in your bulletin, or you can just listen along as I read. This is Psalm 30, a Psalm of David. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, But joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You've turned for me. My mourning into dancing, you have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. And my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. So in this psalm, David is uh, kind of all over the place, a little circular. It's not a linear sort of path. He's kind of meandering about. Some psalms have a, a pretty obvious identifiable structure, but in this one, David is back and forth and roundabout between you know, personal experience and calls to worship and thoughts on God and back and forth. So we'll look at it kind of like this. We'll start with biography. That is David reflecting on his experience. Then we'll look at David's theology, his reflections on God, and then we'll take a few minutes at the end to talk about what we do uh, in light of them. So first, biography. In this psalm, David reads his experience in light of what he knows about God. He, He tells his life story in light of God's story. One aspect of David's story, a significant one, is struggle and rescue. We see it in verses 1 through 3. It starts off, he says, You've lifted me up, have not let my foes triumph over me. And in verse 2, David cries out for help. In verse 3, he says he felt like his soul was in the grave, in Sheol, the grave, the pit. David is no stranger to struggle. He was kind of the ignored kid in his family when Samuel was called by God to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king in place of Saul. Jesse didn't even line David up with the brothers as a possibility. David the runt was sent out to watch the sheep and hidden away while all the kingly-looking kids were put on display. And then when David was serving King Saul, he was attacked by him because Saul felt threatened by him. David found himself on the run from his own king. While as a refugee, David found safe harbor among a foreign people, but then they turned on him. And then when he became king, things didn't necessarily get any easier whether it was an opposing military commander or anointing someone else king or one of his own commanders taking justice into his own hands or eventually the chaos in his own family amongst his kids with his son Absalom conspiring to overthrow his dad, it seems like he was constantly embroiled in one struggle or another. Not to mention that sometimes David was his own worst enemy, right? There's the whole adultery and murder thing with Bathsheba and Uriah and more, right? David knew struggle in his life. The result, result of all this struggle, we'll look at verse 2. He says, O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. You brought up my soul from Sheol. You stored, restored me to life. He experienced wholeness and healing. His life was saved. One particularly striking image there is him being brought up. Apparently that's like the image of a bucket being drawn up from a well. So imagine being at the bottom of a well and being drawn up. So what David says he experiences through his struggle. David experiences struggle and rescue. He says he also experiences confidence in prosperity. Look at verse 7. By your favor, Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. It says, I shall never be moved, David says. David says to himself, and he admits here in prayer, that he had said to himself, he says, I'm invincible. I have all I need. Life is going well. I'm secure. I've got this. God had been favorable to him. God blessed him abundantly and provided for him. David feels confident in his prosperity. And yet, the very next phrase is, you hid your face from me. I was dismayed. So David experiences the absence of experiencing God. It seems that prosperity, wealth, ease, success, and comfort created in David a false sense of self-confidence or maybe overconfidence in his situation. Maybe an unhealthy trust in his wealth and success, maybe pride. Again, we don't know exactly what story from David's life all of this applies to, but we know enough of David's life that we can trust that he knows what he's talking about. He had epic rises and epic fails and falls. But whatever it was, it seems 
that David's success and comfort and ease made him dull to the experience of God. It somehow distanced him from the Lord. Now, this shouldn't be surprising to us, right, if we're familiar with the story of God's people. This is the story of God's people, maybe especially in the book of Judges, which we preached through a couple summers ago. The pattern goes like this, right? God blesses the people. They forget God. Things get bad. They experience oppression from enemies from without and even from within the community. Things fall apart, chaos. Things get so bad that the people have no other option than to cry out to God for help. God in his mercy rescues them. They worship God. They give him thanks. They experience peace. They experience God's blessing. They get too comfortable. They forget God. And the cycle starts all over again. And it's easy for us to scoff at this, but we need to beware. Right? We live in the most affluent and successful, comfortable society the world has ever known. We have freedoms that would be unthinkable for most of human history. We have technology and stuff that would be mind-boggling to even our great-grandparents. In my car, I have a button that warms or cools my rear end, according to my preference. That is absurd. (laughs) One commentator notes there is a a subtle chemistry that corrupts the Lord's grace into self-sufficiency that enjoys his goodness and twists it into self-sufficiency, that enjoys his goodness and twists it into a self-assured cockiness rather than a God-derived confidence. We must beware because we can end up like David, saying in our prosperity, I'm invincible. And in so doing, find ourselves in dismay because God hides his face from us due to our pride. But we still should not despair because the very experiencing of not experiencing God brings David to repentance and humility and his sense of need. Look at verse 8. He says, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. So David experiences a humbling and a neediness. Suffering isn't always a consequence of sin, but sometimes it is. In this case, it seems to be David's pride or overconfidence in his self and his wealth and his comfort that separates him from God. Whether it's suffering from our own sin or foolishness, like in this case, if David's ease and overconfidence, or if it's the ordinary suffering of life, whether that's relational or physical or whatever, like David seems to be recalling in verses 1 through 3, God uses our pain to slap us to attention and bring us back to him. There's an oft-quoted bit from C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, where he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And the beautiful news is that like David, if we have ears to hear God, God will turn our mourning into dancing. Look at verse 11. You've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Sackcloth was kind of like basic itchy clothes worn as an act of repentance. So like think of like a burlap sack or something, right? David gets to take off the humbling itchy clothes and put on gladness, right? Who wouldn't want that trade and the trade of dancing instead of mourning? In David's life, in his spiritual biography, this is what he experienced, God turning his mourning into dancing. Note that God didn't make it so that he didn't mourn, Well, no, mourning is very much a reality in David's life and in our lives. Like, there will be pain and trouble and struggle and sorrow, but it turns. It turns into dancing. Famously in Romans 8.28, Paul says, For those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. Not some things. All things. 
We're bleeding into theology here from biography, so let's go there. Theology. There's so much rich theology and truth about God in this psalm. We don't really have time to plumb its depths, but we'll take it kind of like a skipping stone. We'll just spin and go fast, and in the end, it'll plunk down into the water afterwards. So what do we learn about God from David? First of all, we see that God rescues. Pardon me. We don't need to belabor this point because we looked at it before mentioning some of the episodes from David's biography. But God rescued David from enemies, from his own foolish sin, from family conflict. God rescues. God rescued David and God rescues us. He pulls us up like a bucket from a deep, dark well. How have you experienced God's rescue in your life? You know, at the very least, if you've trusted Christ in him, you are rescued from sin and death. If you've not yet trusted Christ, I urge you to do so. But the very fact that you're here this morning means that God's on the move to rescue you. He's coming for you, and he is relentless. God rescues. Secondly, God heals. David says, you have healed me. And certainly this can apply to physical ailments. God can heal us. He can do it supernaturally. He can do it through ordinary means of rest in the body taking care of itself. He can do it through the wonders of modern medicine. Healing also applies to non-physical hurts. God can heal broken hearts, broken relationships, bitterness, resentment, joylessness, hopelessness, loneliness. Emotional pain can be just as real as physical pain. The good news is God heals. And thirdly, David tells us that God is holy. He says, give thanks to his holy name. Literally, it is his holy name uh, is the remembrance. Give thanks to the remembrance of his holiness. You know, this word holy might roll off our tongues easily. We sing holy is the Lord and the hymn, holy, holy, holy. Maybe we use holy as a tee up for our favorite expletive. The word holy gets a lot of use and it's become maybe overly familiar that we don't even think about it. Maybe R.C. Sproul can suffice for this morning to give us a little taste of what it means that God is holy, this essential characteristic of God. Sproul writes, the biblical word has Two, the biblical word holy has two distinct meanings. The primary meaning is apartness or otherness. When we say that God is holy, we call attention to the profound difference between him and all creatures. It refers to God's transcendent majesty, his august superiority, by virtue of which he is worthy of our honor, reverence, adoration, and worship. He is other or different from us in his glory. The secondary meaning of holy refers to God's pure and righteous actions. God does what is right, He never does what is wrong. God always acts in a righteous manner because his nature is holy. Because God is holy, he is both great and good. God is holy. As we come to know God, we learn, we remember his holiness. He is great and good. He is other and he is pure. David also theologizes about God as a God of anger, wrath. In verse 5, he speaks of God's anger. We may have had to read Jonathan Edwards' uh, sermon, The Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, when we were in middle school. The idea then, and maybe now, makes us a little uncomfortable, makes us squirm. God? Angry? Well, yeah, the Bible says so. David says that God has anger right here. God's anger is manifested throughout the Old Testament, but throughout the New Testament as well, we hear about God's wrath. Jesus speaks of God's wrath in John 3. Paul talks about God's wrath being stored up like water behind a dam at the beginning of Romans, 1 Thessalonians, Hebrews 12. God is a, a God of anger and wrath. But 
David's point isn't to say that God is primarily or always a God of wrath. Actually, on the contrary, the point seems to be that although God can be angry at sin and wickedness, his tendency is toward mercy. Look at the rest of verse 5. It says his anger is but for a moment. Some translations say his anger is fleeting, but his favor is for a lifetime. Yes, God can be angry, and we are sinners in his hands, but God is gracious and merciful. He is a God of grace and mercy. His anger, it's momentary, fleeting, but his favor is abiding. We might say that God's tendency is towards grace and mercy. If you want to flip over to Psalm 103, I love this psalm, and I think it, uh, it helps us to see God's tendencies towards grace and mercy. Let me read a little bit of it for us. David writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. He forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The point there is verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger, and he abounds in steadfast love. God has got a grace and mercy. One last point of theology from David, though I'm sure there's more here in Psalm 30, and that is that we are created to worship. Get verse 9. In verse 9, David uh, starts to argue with God, which may be a little shocking to us. He, he, he puts forth this argument. It says, what profit is there in my death? Right? That is... David says, if I die now, God, you'll lose a worshiper and a witness, and you'll lose out on glory. David is saying, God, I was built to worship you and to tell of your faithfulness. If I die now, you will lose an advocate. You are more glorified by me continuing to live and praise you and tell your story than if I die. The commentator Derek Kidner notes that this word prophet is a sharply commercial word here. And the argument is, for the moment, quite down to earth. David says, you will gain nothing and lose a worshiper. The strength of this, allowing its limited horizon, bounded by death, is that it starts from God's interest, asking what glory will God have from this? And that's the right question. What glory will God have from this? How will God be glorified through this? And David argues that if he dies right here, there would be zero glory. Now, God can be glorified in our dying, and we're all going to do it someday. As Josh quoted a poem by Steve Turner on Easter, here's the last bit. Steve Turner says, doctors can't cure it, surgeons can't move it, Einstein can't have it, Guevara can't free it. The thing about dead is we're all going to be it. But until then, as the Westminster Catechism question one says, the chief end or purpose of human beings is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We are made for worship, created to glorify God. As Jesus said to the people trying to silence the worshipers, crying out on that first Palm Sunday, if the people don't praise him, then the rocks will cry out. God will be glorified. You were made to worship God and to be his witness, which basically means to tell the story of his goodness and faithfulness. 
This really leads into the last bit, and that is, well, so what? How then shall we live? We've heard some of David's biography, how he's experienced God. We've explored some of his doing theology, thinking and talking about God. We also see in Psalm 30 a lot of doxology, which is just a fancy way of saying praise. In short, we ought to live a life that honors God. The chief end of us all is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So a few ways to live this out. First, sing grateful songs, right? Of course, that's one of the application points. He's the church musician, right? But seriously, it's right there in the text. Look at verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord. In verse 13, David says, He'll sing of your praise without ceasing. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Sing his praises. Give thanks to the Lord. Do it in song. As long as the people of God have gathered, there's been singing. It's culturally peculiar to some extent. I get that, you know, to sing in public together. But there's also something really important and valuable about it. Maybe even more so because... Church is one of the few places we actually sing together. St. Augustine ostensibly said, he who sings prays twice. We express and we are formed and taught when we sing. So sing. Number two, pray honest prayers. One of the great beauties of the Psalms is that they show us that raw, honest prayers are okay and good. David prays prayers of thanks. And so should we. It should be a large portion of our prayers, giving thanks. But he also cries out to God for help because he's struggling. He humbles himself. He laments, right? How could his lamentation be turned into dancing if he didn't lament? He argues with God. He was distressed. He weeps. Pray whatever and however you need to. God can take it. He wants to hear it. You know, we pastors read a book together recently called The Care of Souls. It's a book by a pastor for pastors uh, by Harold Sinkbale. And regarding prayer, he said this. He said, whatever you do, don't launder your prayers. Keep the pain and the frustration in them. Don't launder your prayers. Don't clean them up before you pray them. Bring them dirty. Bring them honest. Bring them raw and pain-filled and frustrated. Pray honest prayers. We're taught how to do that here in the Psalms. And then we tell your God story. Tell your God story. Remember, we started with David's biography, so to say, David's experience of life with God. Notice in verse 4 that he's not uh, just sharing his story and doing theology alone. He's not just talking to himself. He's doing so in community. He calls out to the saints. He's sharing his story and then calling others to worship. And we are invited to tell our stories to each other and to those around us. We should work toward it being the most normal and natural thing in the world for us to be talking about how God has brought our souls up out of a deep, dark well. We should make a habit of giving thanks for God's goodness to those around us. You know, we ought to tell about how God has worked in our lives. Telling the story of God's redemption and how that's been worked out in the nooks and crannies of our lives. Yes, maybe in the way that we were converted and came to faith, but also how God's involved in our everyday life, like just a normal, regular old Tuesday. Tell your story, your God biography, as David has done here. Tell it all the time. Sing grateful songs, pray honest prayers, and tell your God story. Now, if you're listening to all this and you're thinking like, yeah, that's all well and good, but that's not where I'm at, not even close. Well, maybe this last one is for you, and that's hold on. Hold on. When I was thinking about this, uh, a few songs immediately came to my mind. Apparently my brain works this way. I've crammed so many songs in there uh, that at any kind of squeeze, like songs just 
leak out. It's kind of like Pastor Josh's brain and the office or Seinfeld, you know, any kind of squeeze and it's just, that's what comes out. But I thought of Liz Weiss and this great song she's got called Baby Hold On or the relatively new Taylor Swift song, uh, This Is Me Trying, off of her album Folklore. The song gets me every time, chokes me up every time. Don't judge me. Um, it's a great song. And the album's pretty, pretty amazing as well. But one song really stood out to me. And uh, in 1993, the band R.E.M., released their album Automatic for the People. It's probably my favorite album by them. And the, probably the most popular song on the record is the song Everybody Hurts. You've probably heard it. It goes like this. Uh, when the day is long and the night is yours alone, when you're sure you've had enough of this life, well, hang on. Don't let yourself go because everybody cries and everybody hurts sometimes. Sometimes everything is wrong. Now it's time to sing along. When your day is night alone, hold on. If you feel like letting go, hold on you think you've had too much of this life, well, hang on. You know, not only would I argue that this is a great song, and frankly, one that would fit right into the book of Psalms, it also has a ton of personal weight for me, because I recall my dad saying how much he loved this song when it came out. Now, ironically, and sadly, about a year after this song came out in April of 1994, my dad did not heed the advice of the song. He didn't hang on, and he took his own life. My dad's suicide for me was when I found myself broken and lost, devastated and distressed. And so not only is this a great song and meaningful to me personally, I'd also argue that R.E.M. makes David's point for him. David found himself threatened by enemies, nearly in the grave, broken, lamenting, weeping, encountering God's wrath, experiencing the absence of God's presence, humbled and distressed. And yet, David says... Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. All right, if you find yourself there with David experiencing any of these or other struggles, hold on. It's not easy, but hold on. And what's kind of wild is that in Jesus, we learn that we can actually experience not just joy in spite of suffering or joy after suffering, but that actually suffering produces joy. You can check this out. Uh, Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 4, John 16. Jesus talks about it, Romans 5. You can check them out later. But as we wrap up, look at, look at Hebrews 12, right at the beginning of the chapter. We read this. It says, let us run with endurance. In other words, hold on. Right? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, the founder of our faith, and he perfects our faith, right? He's got us from beginning to end. So we look to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you see it there? Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. For the joy set before him. For the joy that comes in the morning, we might say. What was the joy set before Jesus? It couldn't have been the cross itself. Right? That's masochistic. It's not the suffering. It's not the humiliation. Not the physical torture or the abandonment of, of God. What was the joy set before him? It was you. Me. The joy set before him was saving us. His death lasted for a bit, but joy came in the morning. So hold on. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. God can and will turn our mourning into dancing. He will clothe us with gladness. Let me give our last word to preacher Charles Spurgeon, who says this. He says, in proportion 
to your tribulations shall be your consolations. If you have shallow sorrows, you shall receive but shallow graces. But if you have deep afflictions, you shall obtain the deeper proofs of the faithfulness of God. Great deeps of trial bring with them great deeps of promise. For you, much afflicted ones, there are great words and mighty, which are not meant for other saints of easier experience. Trials are mighty and largers of the soul. So having listened to David's experiences and learned from him about who God is, let's pray and sing, and then let's remember Jesus' suffering for the joy set before him as we come to the table here in a few minutes. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you are holy. You rescue us. You are patient. You're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. You've created us to worship you, to glorify you, and so we will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn us up and you have healed us. We ask that you would open our mouths, that our lips might declare your praise. Teach us to sing, to be a community that gives thanks and song, that tells of your marvelous work in the lives from generation to generation. Form us into a community that brags on you, on your greatness, and on your goodness. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray honestly, passionately, unceasingly. And for those of us who are barely holding on, have mercy on us, Lord. Send your spirit to help us hold on through the weeping night. Give us hope for the morning when joy comes. Give us grace to run with endurance, the race that's set before us, for the joy that you promise that is set before us. Continue to meet with us and be glorified as we sing and come to the feast with you. We ask all of this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.